So, hi everybody, welcome to the podcast Voices from SA. Uh, my name is Nicholas Claude and I'm happy to introduce my first episode, an interview with uh, writer and commentator Sison Kintzamang. We talk about a lot of things, including obviously her book, uh, Always Another Country, but uh, deal with a couple of other issues as well, patriarchy, racism, transformation, all kinds of interesting stuff. So let's get on with it. I hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Sisonke. A pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Nicholas. I know you are so busy and I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. And you've just flown in from Perth, which is quite a flight. It is. <laughs> um, you're sort of riding on a wave now, this book that you've, you've written, this uh, Always Another Country. And I'm not going to focus on that because you've probably spoken about the book for every day for the last couple of months but and wrote about it and wrote about all of the stuff before that so yes. <laughs> it's been many years maybe we could just start with the title of the book because um always another country in how you've explained it is about what south africa is or how south africa identifies itself but it seemed to me that it also did have something to do with you growing up in a number of different countries. So what what does the title mean? So the title is um, really operates both on a very literal level, like we lived in many countries, and as a child, um, just as you were getting used to being in a certain place, then you'd be off to another country. So very much just always another country in that sort of sighing, impatient, sort of childlike way. And then at a more me metaphorical level, I think always another country um, is about the dream of South Africa. So for so many people, we were always wishing that we would have this other country, this other place that South Africa could be. Um, you know, the world mobilized to help South Africa to be free. And I think the idea of South Africa was an important idea in many people's minds, not just South Africans. It kind of operated as this global kind of utopian ideal. If we could free South Africa, then we could in some ways free the world of racism. It was mm. like the last... Bastion. Yeah, yeah. So always another country sort of stands as a metaphor in that sense. And then I love James Baldwin. And um, another country is, um, you know, one of his... A most interesting works of fiction and it's a, a book that's about an interracial relationship. Okay, um, I've not read him. Yeah, so so for lots of reasons always another country kind of made sense for me. You were born in Swaziland and then traveled through uh, Zambia, Kenya, Canada, studied in the United States. What your father was uh, a member of uh, the ANC of the Armed Wing, the Mkonto Wasiswa, your mother um, from Swaziland. What kind of vision did they paint of South Africa? I mean, I suppose the idea was always that you were going to return to South Africa. Um, how did what was in your mind differ from your initial experiences on your return? When was that in 1992? 1990, well, the same year Mandela was released. I was uh, the, uh, on yeah. the unbanning, yeah. I came back quickly. <laughs> yeah. how, how old were you then? I was 17. And that was the first time you'd been to South Africa then? Yeah. And so can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, I think growing up, my parents um, were part of a community. We, were, we grew up in a community that was very much dominated by the ANC. So... In Lusaka especially, we were known as ANC kids, we were known as refugees. Our absence from South Africa was a defining feature of who we were, not just as a family, but as a community. Um, and so South Africa was just in the ether. The idea of South Africa was in the ether. The notion of freedom was... Freedom was a, a word that was spoken every day in our household, you know? Mm. Um, what so did you understand that word to mean? Then? It's hard to know as a child, you know. I mean, in a sense, we always look at our lives retrospectively. So I look back on myself as a child with the knowledge of an adult. Um, but s certainly, freedom, freedom in some ways meant being able to be with all the people we were with in Zambia 
in South Africa. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a child, it just meant, oh, we would just be somewhere else with all these people that mm. we loved and we could be there. Um, so I don't think it existed really at a political level until, you know, much later in my life. So freedom in some ways meant that we would be living in South Africa with the same set of people because, of course, you couldn't imagine what those uh, other people that you didn't know yet would look like, what they might be like. As I got older, of course, I began to really imagine what my grandparents would be like, um, what they might look like, what my cousins would be like. That became an active part of my imagination as I became a teenager. And did you have a view of the violence of the apartheid regime uh, as well at the same time? Certainly by the time I was 10, I understood that quite well. Uh, when we moved to Canada, South Africa was in the news. The state of emergency was declared in 1985. We lived in, we moved to Canada in 1984. So for the first time, in addition to my parents' understanding and conversations about South Africa. And of course, we were surrounded by lots of, I guess what you would call propaganda material. So, Sachaba magazine, mm. um, you know, uh, listening to Radio Freedom. Freedom. So yeah. there were a lot of, um, what you only realize, again, in retrospect, isn't what other kids grow up around, but you, you take it for granted. So in addition to all of that, we then saw how the outside world saw South Africa, which was through the television, and watching see, you know, tires burning and the gunshots and mm. very visceral scenes of violence. When we moved to Canada, was you know, sort of... So mid-late 80s then? Mid-80s, that's yeah. when it began to be very clear to us. My parents always talked about South Africa as a place we would physically live one day. And as teenagers, I think my sisters and I thought that was kind of a bit of a joke. Really? Yeah, we kind of thought, because we were, because we had grown up... That you think that things were never going to change or that you yeah, wouldn't want that to ever even were, live there? No, that we would want to live there, but that they were somehow deluded, that they believed too strongly that South Africa was so important to them that, like, this Mandela guy had been in prison our whole lives and before we were born. So mm. it kind of seemed like a pipe dream. You know, you reach a certain cynicism you know, in your teenage years, and you're like, sure, Mandela will be released. <laughs> Do you think there were ever times when your father kind of gave up on that notion himself? No. Or did, was he always a true believer that the freedom struggle would end in victory? I think that he was a true believer. I think my well, mother was more... I suppose you, you kind of have to be, once you jump in, you have to commit. I think my mother was more circumspect and a bit more pragmatic. And she was definitely a calming influence, not calming, she was a moderating influence and made, she was the one who made decisions that were purely for the sake of the children. Practical. Practical, this is how you live life. People need to be educated, they need to eat. Um, whereas I think left to his own devices, he was very much a true believer. And whether or not freedom would eventually have come would have mattered less to him than the fight, mm. if that makes sense. Did he go on missions? I mean, was he in combat? Um, yes, he was. Uh, he, if you interview him one day, he can tell you about Wanky and all his exploits. Um, yeah, so yes, he did see action, um, and and kept involved in the freedom struggle for far longer than even we understood as kids. He was gone a lot, and yeah. some of those absences. We didn't really understand why, and we always just assumed it was, you know, quote-unquote work, and, and of course it was, you know, missions. So, yeah, he was pretty active for a very long time. You paint uh, a picture of even in exile and in this constant moving, you, you seem to mention the fact that you felt quite privileged at the same time. Um, and you, you do say that a lot, and I mean, I've read it in other writings that you, 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 you wear your middle-class uh, identity on your sleeve, as it were. Why is that important for you to, to, to say? One, because it's true, and I think it's important to be truthful. And I th secondly, because we are in an era of what people like to talk about as identity politics. And identity politics is really a, a kind of polished up way of talking about how black people increasingly are talking about race and racism and I, I wish it would be a broader conversation about how inequality works and how 
it's important for people to talk about what inequality looks like. And so for me, it's important to talk about class and to not pretend that I come into a conversation about my identity as a victim or as only an underdog or as only uh, someone who is subject to, you know, oppression on the basis of my skin color because I think that's a dishonest conversation. It doesn't take us very far. So I think it is, so it's a political principle for me to talk about class and to talk about privilege. I also do it because exile was a very complicated um, experience for South Africans and it defined the lives of so many South Africans. You know, there were many, many thousands uh, of South Africans who were in exile and our form of exile was incredibly privileged for many reasons that precede um, us leaving, you know, my father's leaving. Um, and mm. so it was exile and it was painful and the loss of it is difficult. And I certainly would not want to um, paper over that. But I also think it's important to say that it was in some ways, the, if you're going to do exile, we did it in the, in the most, in the way that worked for us as a family the best. And mm. that protected my, my, my sisters and I very much. And I suppose, I mean, I don't, I haven't read too much about um, the ANC in exile or the exile experience, but I suppose a lot of people who went into exile had no family and were kind of, well, the only family they had were their comrades in the ANC. And I suppose that does explain, when I think about it now, that incredible loyalty that people still have to the ANC um, today, even though we, and we maybe will touch on this, you know, given the the kind of current state of the of the organization absolutely and it also it's a it's a distinguishing it's a critical difference between my father and i so he lived he, he lived for the anc he left south africa when he was 21 years old for the anc he had he essentially you know forsook his family for the anc was in military camps and all kinds of things that I could never imagine, mm. long before he met my mother, long before he had another family that he created. So he has that, which we were born into a family. We were born into an ANC, but he helped to make the ANC in a very real way. First, first recruits of the African National Congress military wing. So it's a mm. different thing. Yeah. So I think that loyalty thing, it's, it's very important to understand it. I don't have, I understand it, I don't have a lot of time for it, <laughs> mm. but I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you have written about your, the breakdown in your relationship with, with the ANC um, over the last couple of years. Um, maybe you could just touch a little bit on that and how that whole process came about. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I think as a, as someone who defined herself as a child of the ANC, for whom the ideals of the ANC were so important in my upbringing, both, uh, you know, directly as a young pioneer, you know, being the subject of and a participant in propaganda, <laughs> you know, about the revolution and all mm. of that stuff, but also making my own mind up as a young person about the ideals and what I believed in. I do think of myself as a, someone who believes strongly in the principles of the ANC and who was actually proud of what the ANC had accomplished over many, many decades um, as a political movement. Uh, and the principles of freedom, uh, freedom of human rights. Human rights and equality hmm. um, and genuine equality. Um, the principles of comradeship, um, meaning a real belief in one another and in human endeavor. I think that's what those are some mm. of the things that really I, I took I take very seriously about what the ANC used to embody. Mm. And so when it became clear to me, um, I think certainly during the Mbeki years, that this was no longer the, these were not no longer the fundamental operating principles of the ANC. Uh, I think the heartbreak began then. I am no longer heartbroken by the ANC. I think those who are heartbroken by the ANC in some ways are exercising a kind of indulgence that we don't have time for anymore. I think the time for heartbreak is over. Mm. Uh, we've had too many experiences of that demonstrate that the ANC is not going to recover its moral compass. You don't think so? No, So no. it cannot... No. Because I've, I've been having that discussion with myself in my own head that it, it's the ANC, only the ANC can cure the ANC or fix the ANC, but you say that's not even... 
possible now? Only the ANC can cure the ANC, and only the ANC can destroy the ANC. So the ANC will destroy itself. I, I think that's... Because hmm. those who care about the principles of the kind of South Africa we want to build need to be able to move forward with that agenda. And without the ANC? The, to try to work on the ANC while also trying to move forward an agenda for South Africa is to be distracted. Hmm. So I'm this on this one, I'm pretty... Ruth, I, I don't have a lot of time for the ANC. Even discussions about the ANC, I find hmm. a little bit... Boring. Boring. <laughs> well, we'll move on then. You can hear my impatience. <laughs> no, no, but I, I just, I mean, it is... You, uh, you, I've not spoken to somebody who has had your experience and has had been so close to the organisation in, in, in the sense that you have. So it's just, uh, it's, it's really just for myself as, as much as for anyone listening mm -hmm. that I, I want to get that perspective. But let's go back then. You had a you say a fairly privileged uh, upbringing, but that didn't really or hasn't um, protected you from racism in many different countries um, around the world. It seems that, um, I mean, there was very, you wrote very beautifully actually about your time in Zambia and that sort of sense of, of hope and, and and anything was possible. So there was definitely a, a sense of community there between yourselves and the, and the people and, and the Zambians. Um, so you didn't really suffer that xenophobia that you do also um, confront or mention in your book. But racism, it kind of raised its head as soon as it could, I suppose. As soon as you got into a, a, a majority sort of white environment, yeah. then it's there. It, and, as and, it is, and, I mean, yeah. Is, and that is the way of the world. That's the way of the world. And I think the important thing to, to do with racism is to put it in, in its proper place, to, to be able to name it. So certainly when I think about my children, when I think about um, people that I love, young people that I interact with, what I want for them when it comes to racism is for them to be able to frame it and understand what it is so that w when it confronts them, they don't take it personally. Because mm -hmm. once you don't take racism personally, then you can put it in its proper place in the world, in your life. You see what's happening, but then you're not hurt by it because there's no purpose in getting hurt by something that's not actually about you. It's about something as superficial as your skin color. Mm. And more importantly, it's, it's not really about your skin it's color. About it's about that, the other person's it's about the other view. Person, yeah. So once you, once you can frame it, and this is why analysis is very important to me, you know, above and beyond everything else in my life, I believe in intellectual work because analysis helps us to get through so many things that emotionally would otherwise be difficult. So once I have a frame for it, once I help my children to understand it, then you put it in its proper place, and then it also allows you not to make it too big and loom so large in your life. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's important to talk about racism. I talk about racism to the extent that I do because I want to help us all to put it in its right place, but not because I think it in any way, not because I think it deserves a, a bigger place. Y you know what I mean? Is, is it possible then to ever get rid of racism? No, I think the issue is not to... I think the issue is to try to make the world as fair as it can be. So mm. that means to try to get rid of racism. So I think the issue is to try to get rid of racism. The issue is to try to get rid of sexism. The issue is to try to um, get rid of poverty. Um, all those issues that make life more difficult for some people than they should. We need to try and get rid of them. Knowing and fully understanding that that work will unlikely be done in my lifetime in your life you know that that's unlikely to happen but the work is to try to do that and yeah that's that to me is the work right I don't think mm. we'll and it doesn't make me sad or fill me with desolation that it won't be achieved right yeah okay um so that was something was that this kind of notion of social justice came from both of your parents 
Um, and was that something that you always wanted to, because you did, um, once you graduated, then work um, in a number of different NGOs or in that NGO environment, uh, social justice kind of environment, was that something that always was sort of driving you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I grew up with a political conscience and with a strong moral conscience because of both my parents, but also I think because of the environment in which we grew up, the world that I observed around me, Cold War coming to an end. So many things were possible when I was, you know, in the in the early 90s and mid-1990s when I was making those kind of decisions about what you do with your life. And of course, South Africa was free. So the question was, what do you do with freedom? What's the, what is your role in a free South Africa? And it seemed to me that, you know, my role was to help in some way. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so I chose to work on gender issues. I chose to work on public health. You know, AIDS was was the plague that came and took many of us. And so um, in some ways, the work revealed itself. Was that one of the moments, because you were sort of at the, in the eye of the storm then during the whole Mbeki AIDS years. And um, I can, you know, you, you write about that and, and you sense your frustration. Was that kind of a, a turning point in your relationship to the ANC, or specifically around the handling of that AIDS crisis? It was. I think that um, I describe it in the book as as callousness, that this idea that the ANC could be callous, could not care about ordinary people's lives, um, had never occurred to me until the handling of the AIDS crisis. And it's when the very best attributes of the ANC, which were this idea that you had these black people who were so proud of themselves in the face of uh, a whiteness that told us that we were nothing, that you could have black people who were like, of course we're something, you mm. know, mm. and not just something, we're everything. Mm. So, but the flip side of that pride is that it, find, it finds itself unable to be challenged. Or unable to admit failure. Exactly. Or even unable to, yeah, unable to admit an incorrect analysis. Yeah. And so... So Tabo Mbeki's inability to just say, actually, this AIDS thing is real yeah. and, and we need to deal with it. And then he, he just buried, buried himself deeper and deeper into this hole. And that was very disappointing for me because it seemed to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but my analysis was that we, we found ourselves in a situation where many, many people were getting sicker and sicker and dying because he couldn't just say, I was wrong. That just is so disappointing to me. Including his advisor. Parks. That was pretty bizarre. That, um, yeah. Just because you just can't say I'm wrong. So that was a very, very, that was the, 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 be the beginning of the break. And that callousness, I suppose, has now repeated itself. I mean, you've written about Marikana. We're now confronting this Esidimeni life situation Absolutely. as well this and there and seems to be a if you how, look how at you if you look at sasa if you look at the grant system uh, you know so many these are things that are directly affecting the poorest people in this country people who really there is no excuse for this level of callousness so uh, for me that's why i'm so clear about the anc i'm so clear about it in my own head uh, I, I hold no hopes for it can we talk a little bit about reconciliation in the context of a post-apartheid South Africa and um, the difficulties or the challenges facing, uh, facing rec us when it comes to reconciliation, given the fact that the apartheid experience was so different for different groups of people? I mean, there was the purpose of apartheid for white people is to make them feel great and superior mm. mm -hmm. and the complete opposite for the rest of the population. We're still living in an apartheid sort of architecture when it comes to the layout of our cities. We still are not, I suppose, more and more at work and we talk about the emergence of the black middle class, whatever that means, but where, where do people meet to reconcile or how is that process meant to happen or is it... Mm. even mm. possible. Yeah, I mean, I think if we want to 
talk about reconciliation in South Africa, we have to go back to the TRC uh, and the ways in which it was both an amazing experience, very powerful and cathartic for many people, and also a um, profound example of a kind of missed opportunity at a structural level. So I think as South Africans, there was this moment that we were caught up in, which was so emotional. Um, I remember listening to some of that on the radio. Yeah, and also just as a country, we were, it was such an emotional time, you know? Just as an everyday person trying to navigate your way through history. It was so historic. It was so mm. important and very raw emotions. I think it might have been the first time that many people in the white population at least sort of realized fully the violence yeah. of apartheid. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to have yeah. built on... Or, yeah. So, yeah. So it was a very powerful emotional moment. And yet, I think we did... In that terrain, what we also did in the economic terrain, which is that we failed to fully reckon with the structural aspects of what reconciliation would mean. And so just as I think uh, when it came to appeasing capital and making people feel comfortable and confident about what it would mean to have a black government in place and trying to make sure that people didn't run away, I think in many ways we were preoccupied with the same thing uh, when it came to reconciliation. And so I think far too many concessions were made that in the long term have worked against um, genuine reconciliation. So I think because we were scared to be confrontational, hmm. but we weren't afraid to be emotional, what happened was we let a lot of white people off the hook. And more importantly, we left the structures that kept apartheid functional, functioning, we left those in place. So what it's meant is that the TRC dealt with only a small portion of what apartheid actually was. And then when you try to actually have the more difficult conversations now, 23 years later, people say, well, you should have put that in the TRC box. Now that's behind us. Hmm. It makes it really difficult to have the harder conversations about privilege, about continue continuities of racism, how the old South Africa remains with us today. Wow, yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 I have been in certain social circles recently where the, the sort of the racism and the, you know, let's move on kind of mentality is, is, is so strong and it, yeah. it, it just shows a complete kind of lack of understanding. I don't think it's helped by obviously the the, the, the corrupt nature of, of the, the current government because it's seems to kind of yeah, feed think into that, that sort of mentality. Excuse. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's people link them. You know, the racist links a co corruption with um, uh, the reason why apartheid existed. Yeah, this is why we ruled for so long because as soon as you let them govern, this is what they do. So it plays into this idea. Um, it's you know, it's putting exactly. two things together that don't belong together. Hmm. But unfortunately, that's where we we find ourselves. Um, so how do you anticipate now reconciliation or transformation to perhaps this world, this rainbow nation that was created out of it, if we can talk about the TRC somewhat, you know, that, that has become the basis for every beer advert and every hamburger <laughs> advert over the last 20 years. Um, is there a possibility of us reaching that nirvana and how that would, what would need to happen? You spoke at the book launch about anger and that, that kind of the, the notion of anger was taken away from people or the, the, the legitimacy of, of, of anger, if I'm, if I'm sort yeah. of framing that correctly. How, so we still need some more anger, do we? It's not, yeah, I think we do, but I think that's there in spades in South Africa. I think we're very in touch with our anger. Um, it's a very complicated one because for, for a long time I've argued that the kind of angry and robust exchanges that you often see happening between black and white South Africans in the public domain are an example of success that we can live 
in a democracy and be angry at one another and express that anger and that we're still standing because for so long, part of the fear around reconciliation was that we would fall apart. That, that the would violence not, would just spiral into something the, yeah, uncontrollable. And exactly. And so that, or the anger would. And that you would then therefore have to be very careful about what you did or didn't say because mm. it could all fall apart. So when people exchange anger, I find that actually a demonstration that a, we are a democracy that's working mm. because we aren't devolving into violence. So I've said that for a long time. And I'm not necessarily sure how, how sustainable that, that that's enough. So I think it's good. So I think it's necessary, but I think it's insufficient to move us to a next step. I think to move to a next step, which is not the nirvana of rainbow nationhood, but which is, a, I think, a, a, a more sophisticated and nuanced understanding of privilege, of race, of racism, um, and a shared national conversation where we're not coming at the conversation from such extremely different and polar sides. So I, every society has differing views. That's the whole purpose of a society. you know. But I think I want us to be having a, a more sophisticated conversation. And that's only possible when you have a national leadership in place that is able to hold maturely that conversation, which is what we had in Nelson Mandela, mm. and to some extent what you had in Thabo Mbeki. We haven't seen that at any level of the leadership of the African National Congress of late. The DA is, un is incapable of having a, a solid racial conversation of any mm. sort. It's a, it's a hodgepodge of, uh, you know, it's a mess. Yeah. And, and the EFF, I think, is far too invested in a whole range of other things to even begin to demonstrate that kind of maturity because it wants to have a different kind of conversation. So, so I think what is required is a maturity of leadership that we simply don't have at the moment in order to take us to the next step. So we're in this kind of uh, limbo, this sort of strange place where people, citizens in, of their own accord, are having these robust, interesting, engaging conversations, but there's no way to move that towards anything coherent. Uh, a more collective approach in some, in some respects. Yeah. I think it goes uh, to, to sort of my... And I'm, I'm not sure how you you, you view that. My the, the, my view of civil society uh, today, even um, where you think there are some clear targets or clear issues around which to mobilise, does still seem to be kind of very divided on on racial lines, and that is a yeah. consequence of a, a climate that hasn't really exactly changed. So we're still stuck. And I think civil society for many years held itself kind of above all the fray and thought that it was the rainbow nation. And of course it wasn't because it, um, if you look at the leadership structures of most civic organizations, they remain thoroughly unreformed, untransformed. You know, you've got you know, educated white people who are articulate in a particular way who lead those organizations or you have increasingly educated black people who are articulate in certain ways like myself who lead those organizations um, and you have uh, diminishing of mass movements and mass mm. mobilization so all the things that you need that that helped South Africa to become free are, have been eroded in the last 20 years and so 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 we find ourselves in this really strange situation where from the bottom we have little activism because so many activists left and joined the state and then you have a state that is becoming predatory and then you have a political elite that is you know like vampires and then you have a business sector which is thoroughly cynical and um unaccountable sort of preying on all of us <laughs> seems to be more and more the case yeah well i suppose it's always been the case we just find out about these stories more and more yeah. um so i'm painting a very bleak picture no, that's I, I can I can dig it. I mean, we need to yeah. to to realize that we are in a in a state of of crisis. But I suppose crisis should be able to bring opportunity. I thought fees must fall, and that whole movement was perhaps a moment that could have been seized upon more broadly somehow. I'm not sure how that would have worked. You've written a bit about the fees must fall movement. It seems to have kind of lost its way a bit. And I'm just wondering if you have any... Well, A, for me, fees must, pour, uh, sorry, fees must fall was never really about fees. It was more about, for me, how I understood it. Um, it was more about the fact that these kids were paying this money for an education that was actually not going to give them the future that had been painted for them, that they realized, well... 
geez, all the guys that were in my class last year that graduated are working in call centers or mm. or what or not working at all. So it was it could have become a more dynamic protest against economic policy, against government policy at various levels, and it kind of got stuck at the fee level against the universities when it should have been perhaps something else. I don't know if, if mm. that's what you would say yeah, to that. I was think that it, was, it was about, you're right, it was about, it was about many things. Uh, I think Fees Must Fall was um, an attack against the Rainbow Nation notion. And so it was very much about systemic racism continuing to thrive in the new South Africa. And it was about naming that uh, and breaking away from the myth of the Rainbow Nation. So... Mm. It was very important. And about white privilege then, I Yeah, suppose. so that, that was a very important piece of Fees Must Fall. A second important piece was this idea of being betrayed by a government that had promised to do more for black people than it has been able to do. So that was, I think, the second piece of what Fees Must Fall was about. And then I think the third piece of what Fees Must Fall was about, which is what killed it, was about... Um, mobilization on the basis of class politics um, and false representation. And so Hmm. for the last 20 years, every single year at universities around South Africa, particularly the ones that cater to the majority black population, there have been protests on campuses about bread and butter issues, um, especially about food and housing and fees. And when those issues began to affect middle-class student, black students, recognizing middle-class as a very loosely used term. So I think middle-class students who are newly in the middle-class, I think when it began to affect them and began to affect white campuses, then we began to see the rest of society take notice. And so because of that fundamental fact, because it was always an elite and thin group of people who got the attention of an elite and thin group of people, it was doomed to fail because if there's mm. one thing that the ANC is good at is recognizing what's mass versus what's not. And so and so that's why I think Fees Must Fall failed because it was middle-class kids who had hooked onto a range of really important issues for a larger group of kids, but that ultimately they were at the lead and it was not a bottom-up revolution. Couldn't, and couldn't express those needs in the in the way that they... they... They could express those needs in a way that attracted the attention of the media and of gatekeepers. But couldn't but attract couldn't the needs of the mass. They couldn't sustain it and couldn't be, begin to articulate it in a way that was going to create a real movement hmm. and and therefore got very easily co-opted. So we, we now know about how fees must fall, agents, you know, you know, state security infiltrate, all of those tricks. The money the money, all of those tricks, they worked easily because you weren't dealing with a mass movement in the first place. Mm. Yeah. It was a, a, a sort of a, a missed opportunity to, to some degree, but also did show that there is potential for some... Absolutely. So that was... Certainly, a, scared, certainly scared the ANC initially when it began. Mm. Um, the articulateness, the, 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 the very valid and important points that were made about all the things that are wrong with the system. Mm. It was um, absolutely amazing. And very courageous young people. Well, always when you go against the police, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I've been speaking to um, uh, other activists. I, I, I interviewed Kumi Naidu, who worked at uh, Greenpeace, and he was saying how his confrontations with the police when he was at school, even during school boycotts, was a sort of formative experience mm. for him. So perhaps this does become something Absolutely. that we, don't, we don't even realize. I think we're in the middle of a... St- I think we're still in the middle of that story. Yeah. I, I don't think it's that story is fully written. It's an evolving process and one that does offer a lot of opportunities for learning and for thinking through where we're going as a country. Yeah. Um, it was funny. I was on... Uh, I was doing some background research and I ended up on a link with uh, Ian CA the the new site mm-hmm. that that said you write about money power and sex <laughs> I'm not true. sure if you've seen that it's true 
I, I made that up. I, that was my, I did this fellowship and one of the things they asked us to do was come up with a pithy thing that expresses what we do. What do, we, what do you write about? What do you talk about? And that's exactly what I do. I, I write about money, money power and sex. Um, I suppose, yeah, that, uh, yeah <laughs> a, a little bit more deeper level than, than, than the way it was portrayed, I thought. So I just thought I should tell you that. You tell me you made that up. I did. Um, but uh, you do write and you do tell stories and um, you're actually quite funny as well. <laughs> have you ever thought, I mean, have you ever been, like, have you written, com- have you been to comedy? Is it something? No. There was the TED talk, and I, I, I do urge people to go and to look for it when you when you write about storytelling. And this is something I want to just touch on briefly. Um, but it was just a very nicely put together TED talk and very witty. But um, you you work now at the Centre for Stories that is in uh, in, in, Perth. in Perth, in Australia, and um, so stories are your thing. But in this talk, I found it interesting that you almost, I'm not sure if disparage is the, the correct word, but you sort of urged caution when approaching stories. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit upon that and I what mean, you were trying to say. Yeah, I think stories have become the sort of fashionable way of talking about so many things. So the media says, well, we're storytellers and you know, advertising executives say we're storytellers and you know, everyone talks about themselves as a storyteller. So... So on the one hand, I'm always skeptical about things that are too fashionable, that are in use, in popular... But too hip and trendy. Yeah. So, and I think it's important to be critical of those things because when things become too glib, then uh, they're becoming a bit meaningless. So that's one caution that I have about it. Uh, but I think what, I, what is... This, the way that storytelling has become popular has been through, um, you know, things like TED things like The Moth, you know, these big... Snap judgment. Exactly. These big storytelling initiatives that um, are about first-person narrative and kind of getting intimate um, and getting to the heart of something. And it's very... Of an experience. Of an experience. So it's very seductive Mm. and I think can be incredibly powerful. But I think what it does in some ways is, is... uh, particularly, I think, in Western societies, and I'm living in one now, so it become, takes on a particular urgency for me as someone navigating that space, is that it, um, it makes, it, sta- it, it serves as a proxy for an actual experience. So you can listen to a story about someone who's completely unlike you and replace that listening with any kind of action or any form of engaging with another human being around issues that you purport to care about. So I just worry about stillness about being static about being inactive and yet appearing to be active or being able to sound as though one is active politically when one isn't so i that's that's the caution that that's what the ted talk is kind of built around and so i kind of contrast that a little bit with what's happening in the news these days with how much people because i think the rise of storytelling comes at a time when people distrust a lot of information that they get in the media. And so what people are saying is that a story is authentic and the news is fake. And that's really Mm. worrisome because Mm. I think we have to make decisions about the world we live in and decisions about our activism based on facts as well as this kind of deep personal connection with someone or something. It seems to be a dangerous uh, phase we're, we're entering now when it comes to news media in particular that anything that anybody disagrees with, particularly at a sort of senior level within... Uh, society in general, be it business or, or government, is automatically dismissed as fake news. And this becomes now the very sort of um, natural response to, to anything without any kind of debate or any sort of discussion around what is actually being uh, raised or issues that are being raised. And I'm just wondering, um, do you have concerns or what are your concerns now as we move into an election cycle where we're seeing the emergence of bots or whatever the hell you call <laughs> these things in this Bell Pottinger mm. Um, mm. Uh, campaign, uh, the, the white monopoly capital narrative. And I mean, they were clever there because, I mean, white monopoly capital it's does real. exist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they so chose something that, was, yeah. <laughs> it was um, sort of quite a, quite a clever approach if you want to sort of call it that. Yeah. But just as we move into this, this new phase or the next phase of our uh, democratic evolution 
news media is going to become more and more fake? So I think uh, genuine media outlets that are concerned with uh, what, you know, what Donald Trump refers to as the failing New York Times or the failing this. So news media that are concerned about failure, about the lack of trust out there in the general public, uh, I think need to reevaluate themselves. So there is some, there are some things that the media must take responsibility for. I think one of those is being a little bit smarter about how it does tell them what I think about as meta stories. So not the human interest story, which I think everyone's got that covered. We all know like it's good to do the story about the hundred year old woman who's going to vote this time. And you know, she's going to vote for the ANC again because you know, whatever. Right. So on the one hand, I think the media has gotten increasingly good at covering some of those stories, small stories, but I think the meta story of joining up and doing some analysis is what people are looking for. I think uh, readers and audiences are getting smarter about fake news, about educating themselves about what's a bot versus what's a, you know, whatever is a, you know, a site that is reputable versus not. And you've seen that certainly in Western publics who are now increasingly going to what have always been trusted news sources, right? Mm. People are subscribing in larger numbers to the New York Times because they're like, okay, I can trust this source. But what they can also increasingly rely upon with the New York Times is a larger meta story. So I think if we think about the South African context, it means it's important that we have less sloppy errors, you know, factual mm. things. That's really important, actually. Yeah. You know, but Definitely. also it's very important. That's the chink that will be exploited. Precisely, but it's also very important that the true part about white monopoly capital is covered, because if you simply dismiss it, then it only fans the flames of those it who want to legitimizes spread precisely. The so the bigger meta story needs to be told much better, and that meta story isn't only a story of corruption by a new new black government. That's part of a story, but it's also a bigger story about the continuity of corruption amongst uh, the private sector, amongst uh, you know, monopoly capital. All of that stuff is also true. You have to be able to report in a bigger sense about what the society looks like because people recognize it when it's not a fully true story. And for me, that's the important thing that Donald Trump has hit on when he talks about fake news. What people are responding to when Donald Trump says fake news is not a fake piece of information in a particular story. So dealing with a fact checker is not going to get to that issue. How you deal with that fake news, what Donald Trump is talking about is the sense that the media doesn't reflect the lives that people live, what they know to be true from their own experiences. When we can get our media in South Africa to genuinely reflect what people know to be true, which for it, I'll give you an example. For many years, I have marveled at the fact that they've kind of stopped doing it now. But for many years, there's this thing. You'd listen to the news on the radio, and it talks about the currency. The rand is now trading at 10 rands. Why? Who is that relevant for? A very small group of people. Why are we hearing that on an hourly basis? Because media is oriented towards this person who cares what the euro is, what the value, rand platinum. Dollar. Oh, my God. Gold price. People know that that is not for them. So they listen to a whole bunch of media, but what they're hearing every day is that, and that's telling them, this media is not for me. Another example, when we listen to and hear about protests, where's the first place you hear about protests? Traffic report. Mm -hmm. Broken down motor vehicle on the M1, and if you're driving through... Tires burning. Tires burning, uh, uh, protests. They don't tell you what the protest is about, that's not the interest. The news is oriented towards the motorist, not the person who's living in that community who wants to understand why are the tires burning? Who did what? So this is, this is about making sure... Fake news is about people rejecting the idea that the news is not about them. It doesn't reflect the world that they live in. So if we can get better with recognizing that, if the South African media can reorient itself to reflect genuinely some of the critiques that we know are out there, that it listens to the voices on the margins, very clever intellectual voices on the margins in communities to feed how it sees the world and to shape the stories that it covers, then I think we're getting into an election cycle that will be much more interesting, much more useful for people. Um, if I can just touch on another aspect of your writing um, over the last couple of years, and that is patriarchy um, and s sort of gender politics, if I could put it that way. 
and into that, this rape culture, uh, this um, this um, what is referred to in um, Pumna Dineo Gola's book, um, a, a South African Nightmare. Um, if I can speak specifically or, or about the, the, or ask specifically about um, rape culture and particularly this, it seems to be a very South African concept of corrective rape and what the hell is going on there? So I think the thing about gender in South Africa, I just did a piece um, in the New York Times about Grace Mugabe and the ways in which so many Zimbabweans seemed much more angry with, uh, with Grace than she they did. She was actually the real problem. Right? And so despite the fact that the man is the one who's sitting in the seat, who is formerly responsible, who existed long before Grace did and did very terrible things long before Grace came into the picture, somehow the vitriol of, that, of the nation is directed towards the woman, right? It's a sort of archetypal. She's like the bad, the bad woman, the one who tempts the man, right? The Jezebel. The Jezebel. So, so in many ways, I think South African society is like this seductive, thing because we have this beautiful constitution um that gives everybody rights you know all these people fighting around the world for gay rights and for marriage equality we've had it for 20 23 years right mm. so our 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 constitution and this our country in the same breath has this amazing constitutional commitment and at the same time has correct quote-unquote corrective rape has um a culture in which when you attack uh, a woman like Tuli Madoncela, you can talk about her looks as a basis to attack her, as the ANC Youth League did, um, where we have um, the third sort of round of women who were entering parliament. We saw a drop in the number of women entering parliament because actually it's really hard to do it. It's really hard to be a woman in parliament. When you think about women's political participation, you often think once you have a certain critical mass of women, all you're going to do is keep seeing those numbers increase. South Africa shows us that's not the case, that when you get a critical mass of women and their experience is bad, then you see a decrease. If their experience is good and the political environment is one that welcomes women and women are able to change the space, then you see an in increase. So what we've seen in South Africa is this really complicated way in which formal rights do not equal informal rights and informal respect. So South African women are deeply disrespected in the private domain and in public spaces often harassed. Uh, and at the same time, we have an incredible uh, commitment in our constitution and in our law books. There's a disconnect. Huge disconnect. It's a very, it's a very uh, strange thing to be a South African woman, uh, to know both that you are protected in the highest way possible and deeply unprotected when you walk down the street. Um, it's a very difficult thing. And to know that your primary protection in the public space will almost always come from other women very rarely from other men. Um, so, Well, then we see the way the women's ANC Women's League behaved during Jacob Zuma's uh, rape trial. Female patriarchs. You, they're just proxies for male power. We've had that phenomenon all over the world for many years. The, the ANC Women's League is a very sad example, again, of a, of a space that's closed. Uh, so it used to be open, and then we see that that is a space that we have watched before our very eyes become a closed space. Um, and um, again, I have no no illusions about that returning. I think other spaces are opening up. Lots and lots of young women. I think the Me Too movement is an interesting one because um, on the one hand, it's a response to violations that have taken place largely against very um, beautiful, privileged white women on the other side of the world. Uh, and yet it's managed to hook onto an experience that is very universal for all kinds of women all over the world. Do you feel that there will be some, do you, do you sense a gathering of some kind of momentum? Um, I do, but I think that... Uh, in South Africa, I mean. I do see that in South Africa, but I don't attribute it to the Me Too movement. So mm -hmm. I think that long before, if you think about the four young women who stood up 
at the local at the last elections and um, the local government elections and held up those signs. Um, it was extremely powerful. It was a guerrilla tactic, and it was unlike anything that any of the formal political women's spaces would ever be able to conceptualize, let alone carry out. So the one place that I have hope for civic action and for a different kind of South Africa, a reframing of what South African can be, is when I think about young women and their activism in this country. It's extremely exciting to, to watch young women in this country right now. Um, I wanted to get onto that because it does, um, it does feel that there's now a space in the culture for young, particularly black South yeah. African women, yeah. whether it be in um, art or literature, um, yeah. that there's there's something happening there. Uh, do you do you feel that yourself? And and maybe just expand a little bit about what the power of that can, can, yeah, can I become. Yeah, I think there is a space, and I think it's a space that's been made rather than one that just sort of magically opened up. Could you say it is a result of our excellent constitution? I think that um, our excellent constitution is a result of the fights of many women um, who insisted. So when I hear, <laughs> when, I, when I talk to older feminists than myself who talk about uh, being part of the ANC Women's League and who talk about the Kimberley Conference, which was the first ANC conference. We're now leading into a, an ANC conference that will happen in a, in a week's time here. But the first one uh, in the new South Africa, in South Africa, before elections, but after, Medib after the ANC was unbanned, was Kimberley in 1990. And on the agenda that, oh, was it 1991? I, I don't remember. But on the agenda of that meeting was um, this idea that women should be, um, that every, w when the negotiations began, every other person sitting on negotiation teams should be a woman. Hmm. That was the proposal put forward by the ANC Women's League. Everybody, including Nelson Mandela, said absolutely not. So that was pushed back. That was, a very, that was the first lesson for ANC women that they would need to get out of the ANC in order to win the fight to get women at the negotiating table hmm. for the Constitution. So the reason the Constitution looks the way it does is because ANC women were dealt a very harsh no blow. They said the struggle was not about women. The struggle was against racism. That was their first inkling. Oh, no, but the struggle was about equality. So, of course, it was about women and it was about racism at the very same time. But men's articulation of what that was was very different. And so losing Kimberly was what forced women in the ANC to form alliances with women in other political parties. And we have the constitution we have today because women of all political parties formed this alliance, which then lobbied with every single political party in a truly bipartisan way to then insist that you have every third person who is a ne negotiating was a woman. That's why we have the constitution we have today. It's a good example how elite strategies can open up some space, but they don't open up the total space, which is why we have a society that hates women, even though we have a constitution that certain women fought for, for all of us. The, yeah, there's that, that continuing disconnect between the constitution and the on-the-ground um, reality. But um, I'm just want to go back to this sort of this this um, sort of emergence or this uh, this trend. I suppose we're seeing a lot of young black women writing, um, Lady Scully and others, um, Mary Sabanda. You know, artists becoming internationally yeah. recognized. Yeah, um, That's got to be good for for our country, and it does show that in amongst this chaos that we're living through, that th there is space and there is hope. So I feel like what's happening with women in the arts in particular is that it is both a consequence of and in spite of the position of women in South Africa that you have women who are so articulate about what's going on. So, so being in a position where you have to fight for your space, uh, forces a certain eloquence upon you. <laughs> you have to, so it, it weeds out uh, a lot. Um, so one, it, it, it for, South African women are in a situation where they have to fight for space and therefore they get noticed and are tough and tougher than 
many of their male counterparts because we have to be. Um, so that gets you noticed. And if, we, if it weren't for the situation that has to make you tough, you wouldn't have to be that way and therefore you wouldn't get noticed, right? So it's a, mm. ca- it's a catch-22. Yeah. So I think that's what this moment is about, that I think many South African women for the last 20 years have been, we've been laboring and we have been analyzing and we have been very much at the front lines in quite invisible ways. And now is a particular moment in which, you know, it's a moment in history where if you're a 40-something and you've been working for 20 years, then you're at a sort of prime and there's a confluence of events that are making you more noticeable. Zanel has been doing this work for a long time. Uh, Lady Scully is a newer voice, but certainly uh, Mary Sibanda. Some of these names that you mention, Reedy has been working for 20, 25 years. So many of us have been doing this for some time, and this is a particular moment in our careers, in our experiential, you know, blah, 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 that makes us able, that makes the world able to notice us a bit more. What does the, n- the next year hold for you now, 2018, um, particularly... Uh, in the for the center of uh, center, center for, for stories. stories, the center for stories is interesting. I spend two days a week there. My, I've, I've learned one of the things I am learning as I make my way into my forties is to guard my time and to be very particular about what I'm doing with the little time that I feel like I have. <laughs> so I spend two days a week at the center for stories, which is a beautiful initiative. We still we tell stories about people and places in Western Australia. Um, so I've had the lovely, I have the lovely job of working with indigenous people, with migrants, with people who have interesting journeys to help them shape and craft their story in a way that's coherent to the outside world. Mm. Uh, and we do those um, audio, so we do podcasts, we do them, we make little films, um, we have events where pe- we invite people. A lot of our stuff is around food, so we use oh, food as an opportunity to talk about culture and place. Um, so it's great. So I, yeah. love my, I love my day job, as it were. And then my other three days, I spend writing you know, freelance assignments. And, and now I have to start writing on my next book. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got Are some ideas. Are you allowed to say what that is about? Yeah, I've got a, a few ideas kicking around. So my book will be available in the U.S. in fall 2018, which is nice. What they call fall. That's soon. Fall is no no fall is is autumn. Eight months, yeah. eight, eight months time. Not the new one, this one. Oh, I see. So oh, th- okay. this so always another country is available in South Africa at the moment, and we've been negotiating, and it's a whole long big story, oh, but wow, essentially okay. we'll have it available oh, in the fantastic. U.S. Yep, and um, in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. and Australia and New Zealand. I thought that all sort of happened automatically. No, because I I wanted to be a bit smart about how I do my about how I sell my rights and think about my my craft as a kind of long-term craft, which mm-hmm. means that it's, it's important for writers to sell their territories one by one because otherwise there's no incentive for a publisher from South Africa to market your book in, in Australia. Oh, okay. So I'll have lots of different publishers in uh-huh. lots All of right. different territories. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, got it. So that's happening. So that's 2018. Just mm. more just on the road talking about the book. Mm. <laughs> Yay. Yippee. <laughs> and then I have two new book ideas. I have to decide which one I'm going to focus on one is the story about three small towns in South Africa and three murders so it's mm-hmm. non-fiction so real oh, wow. three real murders and what they mean about our country in three very small places and then another book idea is a sort of more global project which is about this whole idea of ambiguity about racial ambiguity and cultural appropriation and what does it mean to be black or brown or white in any case. So I have to decide between the two ideas. I'm sort of They're quite very far different. apart. Very different. But um, it sounds like you're going to be very busy. Yeah. Who isn't? It's yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for your time, Thank Sisonke, you. And Thank you. Uh, all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Sazonka. I thought it covered a lot of ground. It was quite good fun. Her book, Always Another Country, is available at all bookshops and online as well. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and other podcast feeds. Please tell your friends, tell your family, tell your colleagues about this new discussion space. The next episode is an interview with comedian Kahiso Ledicha. He has a new movie out. His directorial debut is called Catching Feelings. 
You can get updates on the show via the Facebook page, Voices from SA. You can also follow us on Twitter. The address is at Voices from SA. Your comments, feedback and support are very much appreciated. Upcoming guests include journalist Richard Poplak, broadcaster Karabo Kholeng, writer Yamkele Kokaidi, poet and playwright Jefferson Shabalala, and political activist, former government minister Ronnie Casserles. It's going to be fun, so sign up and listen in. Until next time, thanks and goodbye. <laughs>